Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey, morning. How are you guys? Hey, hey, hey. Hey, I'm doing well. It's uh, it's good to be back. We've got all four uh, all four hosts today. I was just about to say it's been I don't even know how many weeks. I'm, I think it's been <laughs> almost a month since we had the the whole band together here. I I know we're going to ask you what you did last week, Parth, but we should ask you where have you been, man? <laughs> <laughs> where in the world are you? <laughs> I. I, I just feel so privileged because I just came out of this uh, crypto detox. <laughs> so for the last two weeks, I was barely paying attention to the news, spent a lot of time with my extended family, uh, uh, celebrated Diwali. And uh, but yeah, uh, in terms of location, uh, I, I am in India as of now. And it's actually funny. I have a quick observation, though, uh, which is which I think is worth sharing. So, um, so as you guys know, um, I, I'm in India now, and it's a heavily cash-driven society. And uh, I could see how hard it is to get an exact change for any kind of service in India, right? And I, I just couldn't help but think on how important it is to get Lightning microtransactions. I know mm. you guys spoke about it last week, but I, I just feel like this would so much empower the merchants because uh, everybody has a smartphone, but not everybody has a bank. So I know Ryan and I have used a bunch of uh, horrible Lightning wallets in the past. We talked. Um, we, we've talked about it. We talked oh, about you it. Did? Yeah, yeah. We talked about it last week. Uh, you missed it. Um, I we wonder were, when that changes, though. We were commiserating about what our past experiences and have been, <laughs> and how much how much Lightning has improved, uh, even in the last year, from a usability perspective. Um, all right, I think we can we can jump in. We have quite a bit to talk about today, so I think we're gonna we're gonna kick off by talking a bit about um, some late and breaking news um, around you know FTX, Alameda, and Binance, um, and then we're gonna jump into a story about Goldman Sachs, um, and then we're gonna we're gonna finish it off with um, talking a little bit about um, zk Sync. So um, before we jump in, Parth, even though you've been kind of traveling the world, what did you uh, what did you try last week? <laughs> So, uh, so because I wasn't present for the last three podcasts, um, I have two new things to offer. So the first is a book, um, and I'm just going to tell you guys the title. It's called Extreme Privacy, What It Takes to Disappear. And it's been really circulating in the, in the crypto Discord channels. It talks about how you can be a fully uh, a non-functional personality, uh, which I think was super cool. Uh, but in terms of what I tried last week, I tried this new wallet called Soul Wallet, S-O-U-L. And so this is a neat wallet, which can be created just by your email address. And it has automatic two-factor uh, authentication enabled. And here's the best part. There are no secret phrases or mnemonics which you have to store or write down on a piece of paper. All you need is a single password. And in case you forget it, uh, it has social recovery built in. 
which means that if I trust Jason, Jack, and Ryan, I'm going to put your addresses. And in case I lose my account or I lose my password, I can recover it through you guys. Uh, and I can also choose what the threshold is. So in case two out of three people sign uh, a transaction, I get to recover all of my funds. This is done through an EIP called EIP 4337, uh, which enables smart contract wallets. Uh, this EIP hasn't been added to the code base yet, but in case if this thing becomes truly famous, you heard it here on the podcast first. So, <laughs> and I, part of that, I have to say, I've, I've, I've done some research into the social recovery mechanism, and it's really interesting. So maybe that's a topic for a deep dive in the future, but. Uh, just the idea of being able to address that question about what happens if you lose the private key. You know, what? how do we get beyond the, the risk of being a bare asset is something that I think a lot of people are are contemplating and it's a really interesting topic. So glad to hear you're, uh, you may not have been diving in head first, but you're definitely uh, hands to keyboard, so to speak. So, <laughs> and, and Parth, just, just a question before we move on. So how does the social recovery kind of differ from other um you know, other custody kind of structures, even, you know, in, in cases where you can have like a smart contract. Yeah, that's a really stop. good question. So because of VIP 4337, you have wallets that can also function as smart contracts. So imagine a wallet where in case if you want four people to sign to, the, to, the, to that wallet, only then can you enable a transaction. And that's typically really different from a multi-sig wallet in Bitcoin, uh, which you may have heard about, or an MPC wallet. And so... Uh, EIP 4337 just came out. It's still not merged on the code base, so it's still being tested out. But there are some wild, wild use cases. Um, just to give you a quick, uh, I, I don't know if you guys have heard about IFTTT. So there was a really popular application called If This, Then That. Uh, it's on the App Store. And so the idea of IFTTT is it's about programming everything. So if the sun is setting, I can program in such a way that every time the sun sets, my lights should automatically be dimmed down. Or in case it's going to rain tomorrow, I should get a text message saying, hey, it's going to rain tomorrow, get your umbrella. So imagine doing all of those things, but on a wallet. That's what 4337 enables. Mm. I imagine like the applications Wild. are mm -hmm. almost, almost endless. Yeah, <laughs> The amount of estate planning, that you, can uh, you know, giving your your lawyer a key just got easier, uh, <laughs> as well as like you know the family members that you would pass your assets on to would make a ton of sense. Absolutely, yeah. All right, so let's um let's jump into the into the news. So Jack, I was doom scrolling on Twitter, like trying to understand what exact <laughs> what exactly is happening, and obviously there's like a lot of other news on Twitter right now. Can you just provide an overview of uh, the FTX story and wh what we know as, you know, more or less fact? I think this is obviously breaking news and there's still a lot that we, we don't know at this point. Yeah, it's just when uh, crypto is starting to uh, you know, maybe get a little bit boring uh, over the past week or two. Uh, things had sort of quieted down. Uh, Bitcoin's, you know, at, at historically very low levels of volatility. There's not a lot going on. And then you know, over the past week, this story has started to unravel and everyone's sort of talking about it. So I, I think we want to at least touch on it, um, but without, you know, speculating or, or injecting you know, opinion on, on things that we just simply don't know at the moment. Uh, so I'll, I'll just give like the overview of what's going on uh, and maybe any current takeaways that we might have. And we'll definitely talk about it more as, as things develop. So I think most 
people that are that are listening know who Sam Bankman Fried is, SBF, um, and they know him for running FTX, uh, one of the largest crypto exchanges. Um, but people aren't as familiar with Alameda, right? Some people might have heard of it before, uh, but this is one of the largest uh, trading desks in in all of crypto. Uh, and it's heavily associated with with SBF and FTX. And so SBF sort of has FTX, the exchange, uh, as well as Alameda, uh, this this trading arm as well. Um, and they've been one of those entities that, you know, maybe um, I guess I would put in the bucket as being able to you know, borrow against some of these uh, lenders that are allowing you know, reputable institutions throughout the space to borrow on, on preferred terms. Um, so last week, a Coindesk article reported to show what somebody says is Alameda's balance sheet. Now, we don't know if you know, this is 100% accurate, or if it, it, it seems that it's, it's partially truth um, because of, you know, some people from FTX and Alameda have since come out and, and at least added that, you know, maybe there's more to the story than just this, um, but it does seem like it, it's maybe in the right direction, directionally speaking. Um, and so, you know, what did it say? It said there were $14.6 in assets on Alameda's balance sheet. Uh, and that they had $8 billion in liabilities. And so if we net those numbers out, you get, you know, six, seven billion in, in net equity um, with, with 14 billion, you know, total that could serve as collateral. Uh, but of that 14.6 billion in assets, 5.8 billion of it is this FTT token, which is FTX's exchange token. Binance does a, a similar thing um, with the BNB token, um, but the FTT token is, is FTX's platform token. And I believe it's a third of FTX profits are uh, supposed to go towards buying back and burning this token. Uh, and then there's there's you know different rewards if you have you know the the FTT token on platform, um, but the market cap of FTT in terms of circulating market cap is only about three billion. Fully diluted market cap is like eight billion, but really only three billion exists. Um, but five point eight billion of worth of FTT tokens are sitting on Alameda's balance sheet uh, reportedly. Right. And a lot of, you know, a lot of other assets that are on this balance sheet as well. Uh, there's close to a billion dollars in what, you know, what this Coindesk article calls locked Solana tokens, Sol tokens. Um, so that's another billion dollars that you know, sounds like it's, it's maybe not as liquid as it, as it would appear. Uh, close to six billion in FTT tokens. And then there was a number of like altcoin uh, Solana tokens as well that were, you know, smaller market caps, um, heart, like large, fully diluted values, but small circulating market caps. And so you get to sort of this picture of like, half or, or more than half of the, the assets on Alameda, this, this trading firm's balance sheet, are potentially not very liquid, right? Like maybe couldn't be sold for exactly what they're, you know, sort of marked to. Um, and, and then you sort of net out, well, what's the net equity uh, in assets relative to liabilities? Uh, and, you, and you get to this picture of like, you know, these FTT tokens make up 
pretty much all of Alameda's net equity, according to this report. And so people are starting to ask the question of who's lending Alameda this money against these assets that maybe don't look as liquid as they are. And if this was to be the full picture, some people are starting to you know, get worried about what are the relationships between FTX and Alameda? Uh, and could FTX be lending to Alameda against these FTT assets? Right. So that's sort of the picture that's unraveling. Again, a lot of this is, is just you know, people pulling theories together from this Coindesk article that's not fully confirmed. So that's maybe the as far as I want to pull the like FTX and Alameda uh, uh, strings, so to speak. Binance uh, has shown that you know, they're looking to offload their their FTT tokens, uh, which they received for selling uh, their remaining portion of FTX. FTX was incubated uh, partially by Binance, um, and they received, I think, a over $2 billion payout in, I think it was the, the Binance US dollar token, so stable coins, as well as this FTT token. Um, and and you know, CZ from, from Binance has come out and said they want to sell their FTT tokens as like a, a risk mitigation strategy now, uh, given some of this, this recent news. And so there's still a ton that's unclear, but we've seen people, you know, we've seen outflows from FTX's exchange for the time being, just because people are, you know, Considering if there are potential risks, let's see if you know the the smoke clears, so to speak. Um, but I think all of this gets to a story around like exchange transparency, proof of reserves, uh, and like DeFi or, or self ownership of assets. Yeah, Jack, I, I think that's really the the key, right? Because there's although some of this uh, dialogue is taking place on Twitter. And it's some, it's very interesting to some. see. <laughs> yeah, who knows what's happening behind the scenes? It's a little more than scenes. some, yeah. <laughs> there, there's a lot of information out there, but again, not verified. Some of it speculative. A lot of people chiming in. But when you do have this back and forth from the these uh, these industry players, it is interesting that that plays out in public. And really, what we're looking for as participants in this ecosystem is having the ability to verify information. So you could argue that this is one way to verify public statements, but to the ending point you made there, verifying the the state of assets, proofs of reserves cryptographically is really what we want to see as an industry, whether it's on decentralized exchanges or centralized exchanges. But I think that as, as I've gone through uh, the past several years of thinking about what do people really want we say we want transparency. We absolutely do. But we also want liquidity. And we want verifiable tra uh, trading activities, uh, liquidity, proofs of reserves. And I think that with the, the current environment, this may end up being a, a, a good catalyst to try and advance all that transparency and verifiability. Yeah. If I remember correctly, I think Kraken is the only exchange which has a proof of reserves audit. And uh, there is a lot of research going on on proof of liabilities, proof of reserves. But uh, before this, before the last few months, there was really no traction from exchanges. And so I can really see now uh, exchanges enabling proof of liabilities just because customers want that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, going back to your comment, Jack, around potentially seeing outflows from FTX as a result of this, you know, I think 
you know, people are nervous, right? Um, you know, obviously we've, you know, seen Celsius failure, we've seen Voyager, you know, and, and a lot of others. And I think, you know, within those cases, there were also maybe instances, and I'm, I'm not trying to draw, you know, a direct comparison because they're not the same. You know, it, when we think about how people are, are kind of perceiving this news um, and digesting it and then taking action on it, it's not, I don't think completely unreasonable to to kind of draw a parallel between the two, right? To your point, there there may be some smoke here. Whether there's you know an actual fire that's causing it, I think is TBD. Um, but people are being cautious because you know we've we've seen some some really notable notable failures recently, and I think it has has people in the in the ecosystem on you know relatively high alert. Yeah, there's battle scars. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In the not distant past either, right? Um, and it, to your point, it felt like we were just kind of getting past all of that, um, and then this came out. So it'll be really interesting. Like when we think about lending use cases in particular, the, you know, the proof of proof of reserve, proof of collateral, um, you know, all of that is 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 critical. And, and it feels to me like, you know, we've you know a lot of the failures we've seen, and we've talked about this in detail, were because there was a lack of transparency, right, around what the actual state of the state was, um, and and like the technology is meant to be verifiable and transparent. And what we've seen is a lot of very large kind of companies, you know, build on top of it. And as a result of that, you know, for better or for worse, you have less transparency, right? Jason, to your point, maybe it's time to, you know, use this as a learning, this and others, recent events, to get back to, you know, greater transparency in the ecosystem. All right. So let's move on. Um, let's talk a, talk a little bit about Goldman. Um, so Goldman Sachs um, introduced a new crypto classification system uh, called Tautonomy, and um, they're launching that in partnership with um, the index provider MSCI um, and you know crypto data firm, which you know many people know, uh, Coinmetrics. Um, and essentially, what they're looking to do is divide digital assets in different, into different uh, classes and sectors and subsectors, with the goal of making it the industry and the ecosystem a little bit easier to navigate um, from an investment standpoint. I think, you know, we've obviously covered um, at great length in the past institutional adoption of crypto. I know we just had our institutional investor survey come out. I think all all kind of um, indicators show that we are continuing to see an increase in adoption, certainly, or, or interest in, in, you know, investing in, the, in this asset class. And I think this is a really interesting kind of step on um, just to help people understand the nuances, um, you know, between some of these, some of these projects, right? Like, I think, you know, when you're just starting out, education is a, you know, critical piece um, to thinking about, you know, how you're going to invest, what your investment thesis will be, um, you know, how you want to diversify within digital assets, because obviously, as we know, the projects are not created equally, even, you know, amongst the, the, the you know, the mega cap, quote unquote, cryptos, right? Um, the value propositions, you know, as we've talked about, you know, Bitcoin versus Ethereum, um, you know, are starting to to change, right? And they're, they're in some cases materially different. And so I think um, it'll be interesting to see how this information um, or these these kind of labels are used, um, you know, in, in, in um, investing. Um, and I think, you know, risk management is another example. I'm curious kind of what your guys' thoughts are. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll just jump in and tell you that I think the ability to segregate these tokens or these, these 
assets into categories that are more granular is going to be very helpful for people who are looking for a specific type of exposure. And if you think about, in some cases, you've got uh, sediment layer tokens like Ethereum. Okay, we all know Ethereum has utility. It drives a lot of transaction processing. But not everybody knows what the other types of tokens are that run on top of that layer one blockchain may, may be intended to do. So I think the ability to... Uh, sort of classify or put those things into sectors can help people have a better understanding of the nuance associated with different digital assets. Yeah. For me, when I saw this 23-page document, I, I just liked how they started off with really explaining the difference between a coin and a token, uh, and then classifying meme coins, privacy coins, DeFi tokens. Uh, but honestly, I, I couldn't help but laugh at the fact that uh, a formal report has the word meme coin and described at length. Uh, and uh, crypto society has come to such a way that you have reports pushing out and explaining what meme coins are. But maybe I have a question for you, Jason, on this. So incidentally, MSCI uh, also is set to offer three different indices. Uh, uh, and so to capture the performance of the top 20 digital assets by market cap. So out of these three indices, the second one, has digital assets that are not relying on proof of work consensus, which basically means that they are excluding Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't say, honestly, Parth, but I, I do think about when a, a company like MSCI puts together indices, they do so with intent. So I would imagine that they're they're making a decision to exclude proof of work for one of these index um, index benchmarks because they're looking for a specific set of exposure that excludes the, the proof of work chains. Gotcha. It'll it'll be interesting to see if, and I don't I don't know if it's necessarily these indices, but at some point you'll get products created off of a set of indices, and you'll start to see like you know fund flows through products will be like meaningful and change the like I guess you would call it market structure of like crypto um, and how money flows into these assets because. There aren't a ton of great, like diversified products to get exposure to the direct tokens today. Um, but I think part of that is because there aren't a bunch of like indices that slice up this space into different categories. And, you know, like like you have value and growth in the equity space. And like that's a trade that people talk about and people allocate according to, you know, across, you know, whatever, however they're feeling about the current you know economic environment. Like, how does that work in the crypto space? I don't think we've gotten there yet because the space hasn't been mature enough yet. And we haven't decided on like, what are the groups of assets? You hit the nail on the head maturity in traditional financial markets. Like we have a really good paradigm structure for how we think about, you know, bucketing these assets by sector. And I think that because we've seen such an explosive kind of growth within the ecosystem, it's been very hard to kind of um, maybe maintain some level of consistency in the chaos. And I think like that's what this is intended to do. And I, I do agree, like I think this is foundational um, and will likely, you know, lead into other things and is intended to lead into other things like investing once once you kind of bring that standardization kind of across the different assets. I, I, I agree. And I have to say, I laughed uh, for two reasons. One, I, I saw an article in which uh, CEO of Coinmetrics talked about um, bringing an adult framework forward because I think it really speaks to the maturity, not that the users are not adults. But 
Parth, I was laughing when you talked about you can't believe that a traditional financial services firm is talking about meme coins. They talk about meme stocks all the time. So like meme has totally come into the investing culture, uh, particularly in the past couple of years during the pandemic. So um, I, I have to say it, it's funny because I see the convergence happening from a different side, whereas you're seeing it from uh, a crypto native side. I've sort of walked both of those lines for a while. But I, I do want to just also highlight one more thing. Um, when you have these indices, you can set the particular exposure you're looking for, but from there, you can customize exposure through these bespoke indexes. So I might take this canned index and say I want to exclude um, anything that has data storage, or I can start to create these customized things that really fit my desired investment profile. And I think that's what can be powerful about a, a more granular segmentation and then um, last but not least, I would say you also get to the point where perhaps you'll see different derivatives that are based off of these indices as benchmarks. Yep. Yeah. All right. Do we want to get a little bit more technical for a moment? We can, we can finish it out strong. Um, so, so Parth, can you, can you just give an overview of, of ZK Sync? Um, I guess prefacing it that it's, you know, fairly fairly complicated technology. Yeah. And maybe as you kick that off, Parth, can you tell us there are two types of rollups, right? Zero knowledge and optimistic. So what, how do we differentiate? Yeah, that's, a, that's actually a really good question because I think a lot of people uh, ask that. Uh, but so I'm sure a lot of people may have heard of um, rollups and how they've been one of the biggest ways of scaling Ethereum, right? And so, uh, so here's a quick one-on-one refresher on why we need them. So in case there are a lot of people using a blockchain for games, NFTs, or DeFi, it quickly gets slow and expensive, right? And so enter rollups, where the idea is to lock a bunch of funds on a smart contract on a layer one, and then maintain a ledger of transactions outside the network. And, and so you settle only when the user says, hey, you know what, I want to get out of this, and I want to settle. Um, and so... People may have heard about optimistic rollups and ZK rollups, uh, and the only difference between these rollups is how they achieve settlement or finality, right? So for ZK rollups, all the transactions that are done are rolled up after every few blocks, and a proof of validity is published on the main chain. Uh, however, for optimistic rollups, all transactions are considered valid because you're optimistic about them, right? And so in case someone feels that they were cheated or they were wronged, they can submit a proof of how the transaction is invalid. And so it's kind of more reliant on game theory. But those are the key differences between an optimistic rollup and a ZK rollup. So um, coming back to the story of ZK Sync, so ZK Sync team believes that it's the only production-ready ZK EVM compatible chain, which means that as a user, what do I care about? I just care about my experience. So my user experience will be really, really close to how it is for any other Ethereum decentralized applications with the same security guarantees. So if I'm a DeFi team or an NFT team, I have to make no changes to my code and I can simply deploy it uh, on this new network called ZK Sync, which pretty much abstracts away a bunch of transaction fee and makes transactions faster. So that's kind of the, the TLDR. Uh, but I, I, I think uh, one, of my, one of the biggest takeaway from this announcement, at least for me, was 
that they are introducing this concept called account abstraction. And we, we spoke about it uh, in, in, the, in the Soul wallet story, but without really going into the technical design, what it means is that you can have some of the most needed UX-based use cases, such as, such as social recovery or paying in whatever crypto I have or having easier multi-sig wallets, right? So account abstraction is this really um, awesome concept of making authorizations programmable. Right, and so uh, so pretty much you can give logic to your wallets, and zk sync has decided that they will have account abstraction natively. So so just to give you a super quick example, if I want to use zk sync, and I want to use three keys to authorize transactions, sure I can do that. Or if I want to change my public private key every three weeks or every week, I can do that. Or if I even want to go down to the really uh, to, to the basics of changing signature schemes, I can do that as well. So I guess my point is that the possibilities are endless and ZK Sync decided to uh, get that in. So so Parth, what's next for Ethereum scaling? What else are we, what else are you watching? I think the next phase would be, so you have a bunch of these L2s. So you have uh, ZK rollups and ZK Sync is probably the only L2 which is EVM compatible. And then you have optimistic rollups like Arbitrum Optimism, um, I think the next would be cross-communication between these L2s. Um, and so that's that's something which I think I'm really excited about. And at a more protocol level, I'm also um, excited about sharding, which is another concept which I know could be a, a bonus episode. But uh, coming back to ZK Sync, I think the only criticism and controversy that they have faced, because uh, they had this uh, really hyped 100-day campaign, where they said that they will fully launch on mainnet by November. But right now, you have to be a selected DeFi partner to be on ZK Sync. So if I'm Aave or Uniswap, only then can I be on ZK Sync. And so it's technically not fully open yet. And that's why they're also getting like a lot of uh, pushback because, I mean, is it production ready if, if any team cannot deploy on ZK Sync? So that's kind of, that's the criticism that they are getting. Most of, most of these scaling uh, solutions aren't open source, right? So ZK Sync is partially open source. Uh, a bunch of other uh, Optimism, Arbitrum are all fully open source, but uh, they're all on the road. I mean, ZK Sync is still on baby alpha mode, so it's not technically fully mainnet, but once that happens, they will be fully open source. So Parth, I, I mean, I don't know the details of the same depth that you do, but wouldn't it make sense that if you're trying to build out a new capability of that type of complexity, you'd want to limit the number of participants and try to know that the participants that you're working with are really upskilled in this space. So uh, basically battle test it before you try to roll it out further. Absolutely. And that's what ZK, ZK uh, Sync team uh, believes in. However, on the other side, uh, the promise of ZK EVM compatible chain means that if it works on Ethereum, it should fully work on this network as well. So the other pushback from other teams is, hey, we know Uniswap works on Ethereum. We know our protocol works really well on other blockchains. So why cannot we just simply port it to this network? Uh, so that's kind of, and I, I think there are, there are pros and cons to both of them. All right. I think we'll, uh, we'll leave it there for today. Glad, uh, Glad to see us all back together again. Appreciate the discussion as always. And um, we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Have a good rest of your week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. See you later. See ya.
Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment, and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets, nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice, and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated, based on the information available at the time, and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.